As a vegan, do you ever feel like you're living in a parallel universe, aware of things that many others don't even seem to notice, let alone acknowledge? I'm Chrissy Benson, host of the Vegan Posse podcast. We talk with vegans from around the globe who, like you, are living lives of integrity and compassion with an eye toward justice through their personal stories. You'll come to see that you're not an outlier. In fact, you're part of an entire posse of individuals who aren't just keeping the peace, they're creating it through their food choices and beyond. You won't be saddling up, but you're in for the ride of your life. Welcome to the Vegan Posse. Hey, Posse. It's your host, Chrissy Benson. Are you tired of all the non-vegan romance novels out there? Well, how about a vegan anti-romance romance? Check out my new novel, Marrying Myself, by me, Christine Melanie Benson, available at Amazon and everywhere else. And now, on to our interview. Today, the Vegan Posse welcomes Patty Brightman. Patty is an advocate for animals, people, and the planet. She is the co-founder of Dharma Voices for the Animals and the director and founder of Marin Veg. Patty is also a writer whose books include How to Say No Without Feeling Guilty, How to Eat Like a Vegetarian Even If You Never Want to Be One, Never, Never Too Late to Go Vegan, The Over 50 Guide to Adopting and Thriving on a Plant-Based Diet, and Even Vegans Die, A Practical Guide to Caregiving, Acceptance, and Protecting Your Legacy of Compassion. Patty lives in Fairfax, California with her partner of 33 years, Stan Rosenfeld. Among her neighbors and friends are coyotes, deer, birds, raccoons, gophers, spiders, and countless critters who make her smile. Patty, welcome to the vegan posse. Are you ready Thank for the you. ride of your life? <laughs> I love that. The ride, you don't have to saddle up and you'll have the ride of your life. I love that. Yes, I'm very ready and happy to be here. Great, great. Well, we're thrilled to have you. Um, so why don't we jump in? Can you tell us about your vegan story? How and why did you first go vegan? I can thank Harvey and Marilyn Diamond, the authors of Fit for Life, a very successful diet book back in the 1980s. I was the editor of that book and when I worked at Warner Books in New York. And that book convinced me to go vegan. I, I'm sorry, vegetarian. Mm. I didn't know about vegans yet. But the book convinced me that humans are naturally vegetarian. And the way it convinced me was Harvey wrote, if you put a baby in a crib with an apple and a rabbit, if the baby eats the rabbit and plays with the apple, I'll buy you a new car. And I love that line and I love that whole book and it changed my life. So I stopped eating meat and I stopped, um, I stopped my habit of eating all animal flesh, but I didn't know about eggs and dairy till I moved to California when everyone I met who heard I was a vegetarian asked why I wasn't a vegan. And I was, that was a new concept to me. And I said, why should I be a vegan? And they all encouraged me to read John Robbins' book, Diet for New America, which totally, totally, totally moved me, opened my heart. And within 24 hours of reading that book, I could no longer be part of the dairy industry or the egg industry or honey or leather and all that stuff. So the major change came from Harvey Marilyn Diamond, followed up by the vegan change by John Robbins. And I still adore him. Me too. Me too. <laughs> um, what was the, what was the time frame? How long were you vegetarian, a non-vegan vegetarian? About a year. 
Oh, okay. Me, so, yeah, I, I moved to California within a year of editing Fit for Life, maybe a year and a half. I can't remember the dates, but it gotcha. was only about a year. Mm -hmm. And it was a, being a vegetarian was a huge change. Being mm -hmm. a vegan was um, a quantum leap from there. It was even a bigger change. And yet the benefits and the feeling of um, integrity was incredible. I didn't get the ethical part of it until I read the John Robbins book. It was all about health mm. with the um, Harvey and Marilyn Diamond book. And then when I read John Robbins, the universe opened up and I realized this isn't a health decision. This is mm. really about being kind to other creatures with whom we share the planet. That makes sense to me. You you moved from vegetarian to vegan much more quickly than I did. I had I was vegetarian, um, still eating animal products for probably close to a decade. Um, so you moved much faster than I did. But I relate a lot to everything you shared about that feeling of integrity. Um, so as I understand, you've been meditating since 1973. Um, not, right. not continuously, of course. Um, <laughs> um, how did you first come to Buddhism and mindfulness? Those are really two separate questions because the meditation predated the Buddhism by decades. Oh, yeah. my uncle, my uncle, may he rest in peace, was Herbert Benson, who wrote a book called The Relaxation Response in 1973 or four or five around there. And he told me when I was in college he was doing research that meditation was good for you. And if I had the opportunity, I should learn meditation. So I did. I learned transcendental meditation when I was in college. And I did that for decades. And it wasn't until I moved here. So that was um, 19, early 70s. I moved here in the mid 80s. Maybe it's not decades. Maybe it's a decade and a half. But I meditated through TM for 15 years. And then I moved to California and discovered insight meditation and the Buddhist path. So what got me into Buddhism was I lived very close to a center called Spirit Rock Meditation Center, which is one of the largest meditation centers in the West. And I used to go on Friday mornings to do yoga. And after the yoga, there was a Dharma talk, meaning a talk about the Buddhist teachings. And I would stay for the talk and it was, it touched me and it moved me and I wanted to learn more. So I started going on retreats and I went on a 10 day retreat and then I signed up for a 10 day mindfulness yoga meditation retreat. And then I signed up for a dedicated practitioner retreat, which was four years of three, three 10 day retreats over three years. So every year for three years, you had to do three 10 day retreats a year. I just fell in love with the teachings of the Buddha. And I still love them. It's just really a, a blueprint for living. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense to me. I, well, a couple of things I've read the relaxation response and I share, I share the same last name. Um, as oh, the I, author. Know. I know. I um, know. <laughs> and he just died last month. He did. Oh, I he didn't did. know that. Wow. And Harvard, Harvard medical school flew their flag at half mass for him. Wow. Wow. Quite an honor. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I actually did, I just earlier this year, I did a TM course. I was, I've been med had a meditation practice for a long time, um, you know, through more of the insight variety of Vipassana meditation. Um, but I was curious about TM. So I just did a course a couple of months ago. 
That's um, so funny. We did the opposite direction. The opposite. Yeah. Yeah. Do they still ask you to bring a white handkerchief, a piece of fruit and something yes. else? Yes. 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 They do. They do. Interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, so for you, when did the worlds of veganism and Buddhism first intersect for you? Well, I have to, I don't know why my computer's doing this. Um, after the retreats I went on, I was always dismayed to see the food served on retreat. It was vegetarian, but it certainly wasn't vegan. And it always bothered me. So after each retreat, I would write a letter to the teachers saying how disappointed I was and why they really ought to practice what they preach and offer a vegan diet. Well, after about my third or fourth year of doing that, I heard from somebody who said, my teacher told me that you write similar letters after every retreat to the ones I write. That was Bob Isaacson who lives in Southern California. And he said, we ought to start an organization to sort of lobby them to change. So he and I and David Blatt and Kim Sterla, David Blatt's an attorney in animal rights field and Kim Sterla runs Animal Place, a farm sanctuary in Northern California. The four of us started Dharma Voices for Animals and our initial goal was just to change the Western centers to offer a vegan diet instead of a vegetarian diet. That goal has expanded and now around the world, I'm really quite blown away by the work they've done. Dharma Voices for Animals now is in, all, is in the countries in Asia that are officially by charter vegan, uh, vegetarian countries. Hmm. And they're trying to teach the people there how and why to go vegan to be more in alignment with the Buddhist teachings. And they're in Sunday schools and they're getting huge turnouts to their events. They're doing international conferences on veganism. They're just doing a great job. Wow. So that millions and millions of people are affected by these changes as opposed to trying to change the Western centers, which we're also doing, which would hundreds of thousands might, but millions and millions of people are affected by the work in uh, Sri Lanka, and Thailand and the other Buddhist countries. That's so interesting. And how, how receptive are they generally to the vegan message? Pretty receptive. I haven't been there. A lot of the, I mean, the other board members, I'm not on the board anymore, but board members and, and now new, new leaders in those countries are reporting back that the people are very receptive. They may not go 100% right away, but they're moving in that direction and they're learning that it's better for them better for the planet and of course for the animals. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm curious if you have any thoughts on this next question. Um, what would you say that people are missing out on either vegans who don't have a meditation practice or bodhisattvas, regular meditators who aren't vegan? I think it's about the integration and, um, What's the word? Integration is like a very scientific word, but it feels more whole, mm. more consistent, more congruent, more consistent with what you believe and what you practice. And not, I think people who practice meditation without being a vegan have to, in some sense, be in denial, have to not be looking at the whole picture. And people who are vegan who don't meditate, 
are only missing out on the opportunity to feel more alive. It's I don't think that's an ethical quandary. The other one's an ethical quandary. I think it's fine to be vegan and not meditate. That's okay. I'm not mm-hmm. a proselytizer for meditating. Right. I am a proselytizer for veganism. Yeah. Because not yeah. meditating isn't hurting other people. Mm-hmm. It might be because meditating helps other people and that we become more peaceful. We become more less reactive, more responsive and less reactive. And that affects everyone we come in contact with. But it's not as direct a harm. Mm -hmm. It's a second degree harm. Whereas if you're not a vegan, that's a first degree harm. Right, right. Yeah, that makes sense. And I've, by the way, I've written um, similar letters to meditation centers following retreats. And well, I hope you'll join Dharma Voices for Animals then. Um, I'm familiar. I'm, I've been familiar with um, that group for a long time, but I didn't officially join. So I will, yeah, look into that for sure. I hope so. Um, I hosted a few years back here in Nashville. I hosted a screening of the movie, A Prayer for Compassion. Uh-huh. Um, which That's I Victoria think Victoria Moran's movie that she yeah, produced. Yeah. Yeah. And I figured here in Nashville, you know, we're in the Bible belt. And so that was a movie that really needed to be seen here in Nashville. Absolutely. Um, so that was that was very interesting. I um, want to recommend another film that Dharma Voices for Animals made called Animals and the Buddha. And it's, okay. available, it's available on YouTube for free. And it's also available for free on our website, Dharma Voices for Animals.org. And it's been translated into half a dozen languages. So you can choose what language subtitles you want. Oh, cool. Awesome. I'm happy you mentioned that because I'm not familiar with that movie. Um, So how have you personally evolved as a vegan? That's a funny question because I feel like it's a cycle, not an evolution. Mm. I went from not knowing how to cook. I mean, I was the butt of jokes in my family. I couldn't boil an egg. I couldn't make it. I once baked brownies and forgot to put the vanilla in. So when they came out of the oven, I sprinkled it with vanilla extract (laughs) and ruined the brownies. It was a terrible, terrible cook. And then when I went vegan, a woman named Jennifer Raymond ran a support group for vegans or a potluck rather once a month for vegans in Palo Alto, California. And I fell in love with her in that she did cooking demos at these potlucks. Hmm. And I was like, oh my God, it's so easy. (laughs) She wrote a book called The Peaceful Palette. It's not in print anymore, but I hoard those books on the internet. I buy used copies. I give them to everybody I know. It's the easiest vegan cookbook I have ever seen. And it's the one I still think is the (laughs) best. Now, back then there weren't many. I think I owned every vegan cookbook for the first five years I was a vegan. Now there are probably a thousand of them. I couldn't possibly own them all. But The Peaceful Palette by Jennifer Raymond changed my life. I started cooking Mm. so many things like, oh my God, I can make meatloaf vegan. I can make lasagna vegan. I can make soups. My favorite soups, Latif soup. I can make it vegan. I was like, I was so excited that I couldn't (laughs) cook. And that lasted for about, let's see, that was 1990. And 2002. So that lasted 25, almost 30 years. And then in the last few years, I've gone back to being even more simple. Mm-hmm. I don't cook as elaborately. I don't use recipes as much. I just throw things together with what I have in the house. For company, I'll use a recipe. Mm-hmm. For company, I'll make something fancy from Jennifer's book. But um, 
for myself and my husband, I'm, it's just so simple now. It's mm-hmm. back to like, just eat what's good for you and what tastes good. It's the same thing. Right. And my favorite fast food is fruit. I love mm-hmm. snacking on bananas and blueberries. I mean, apples, you just pick it up and eat it. There's nothing fast. You don't <laughs> have to go to a drive through So I've simplified everything. And now with frozen desserts, as good as they are in the market for vegans, I'm not trying to be a health nut because I love the frozen desserts. There's a company out West. I don't know if you have it in Nashville called um, Nada Moo. No. Spanish Nada meaning nothing moo. Mm-hmm. And my favorite new flavor is Nada Moo's uh, mint chip, chocolate mint chip ice cream. But I like all their flavors. And I'm just <laughs> so impressed with how many companies now produce good vegan cheese and good vegan ice cream. So when I entertain now, it's really funny. We had people over yesterday, first time in two and a half years, we had company that wasn't family. And uh, I served cheese and wine. And it was just bizarre. We had three <laughs> different cheeses and lots of different crackers. And also I had some dried fruit and some fresh fruit. It was just, it looked like someone, it looked like a mainstream table. You wouldn't know that we were vegans. Right, right. It was fantastic. Were so your I'm guests? Like said, Go ahead. I'm sorry. My guests were very impressed. They loved the cheese. They wanted to know what brand it was, where I bought it. And the brand, I don't think it's from Canada. It's called Nuts for Cheese. And they have seven or eight varieties. They're all delicious. And they come in a box that's like a a pyramid wedge, like a giant wedge of cheese. Oh, nice. Really delicious. Until until I discovered that, my my favorite was Miyoko's. Mm. Miyoko makes a butter that's out of this world and she makes fabulous cheeses. And she's a neighbor of mine and a friend of mine. And I just Uh love everything she makes. And until I discovered nuts for cheese, her cheeses were my favorite. (laughs) So now they're tied. Let's say they're tied for first. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. I really feel like we're living in an era of, you know, quality vegan cheese. You know, it's, it's, there's been a revolution in that industry. I think we're really lucky in that respect. And I think Miyoko led the charge. I think she's the reason we have this revolution. I also want to say one of my early favorite cookbooks, along with Jennifer Raymond's, was something by Joe Stepaniak called The Uncheese Cookbook. <laughs> and before there were any vegan cheeses, before even the terrible sliced cheeses, like in the packages with plastic, mm-hmm. there was this book, The Uncheese Cookbook, that showed you how to simulate cheese. Huh. for a dip and for a spread and for dishes that call for cheese. And that's how I learned how to make um, the ricotta cheese that I use in the lasagna recipes. Anyway, the uncheese cookbook is very good, but the cheeses aren't fermented. So they're not like dairy cheeses. They mm-hmm. simulate, they replicate, but they don't, they don't really match dairy cheeses in flavor and texture. Okay. That makes sense. Um. So I, I'm curious about your career in publishing and books. It sounds like books have played a big role in your own veganism. What role do you think books play in general in the vegan and animal rights cause? I think it depends on who you are. If you like books, they're going to have a huge influence. If you're not a big reader, you're probably going to watch movies to, to open your heart and change your mind. Um, In my life, books were everything because I worked in publishing first as a publicist, then as an editor, then as an agent. So I've been working with books for years. And the two, I told you already about the two that changed my life. 
some people don't want to read a book. If you, mm -hmm. even if you give it to them, it's like, I'm not a reader. I'm not going to read this. But if you show them a movie, they'll watch it. If you give them a pamphlet, they'll sometimes read it. And even that won't change some people's minds. I think you have to be ready. And I don't know what makes you ready. I wish I did. That's like the secret. Yeah. Yeah. But I feel I like not. that's the theme of every single, you know, vegan animal rights conference I've ever been to is everybody's we're all, we're all looking for that silver bullet. You know, what, what, what does it take to turn people vegan? Well, and Victoria Moran wrote a fabulous essay just last week or two weeks ago about how to meet people where they are. And she identified different food types, food styles, people have food styles. Mm. And she said, find out what their food style is huh. and then use that. It's a really, really good essay. It was on her website. I haven't seen that one. I'm going to oh check it God. out. Oh my God. It's yeah. excellent. I reprinted okay. it. I reprinted it or I, I put a link to it in my newsletter because I loved it so much. Wow. She says some people are gourmets and they want fancy, fancy food. So show them all the gorgeous gourmet food that vegan can be now. Some people are trendsetters and want to be at the hot spots or take them to the hot vegan restaurants. Mm. Some people are um, plain Janes and Joes. Show them how to make vegan lasagna and vegan hot dogs and vegan hamburger. She shows you that everyone has a food style. And you yeah. should people with their own food style to explain why you're a vegan. That is brilliant. She that is me. brilliant. Victoria yeah. Moran, is, she influenced me a lot too. Victoria was my first client who was a vegan. And after I worked with her, I said to her, I wish I had more clients like you who see the world that way. And she said, well, why don't you ask them? <laughs> I said, what do you mean? She said, they don't have to come to you. You can go to them. So it was Victoria who encouraged me to approach John Robbins. So I represented him on his subsequent book, not Diet for New America, but the one he wrote after that. And I'm, I'm embarrassed or proud. I don't know what to say. We became friends and I love him. But the book I represented for him, whose title I cannot even remember, <laughs> the only one that did not sell well. Of all oh, no. <laughs> um. Yeah, Victoria's played a big role in my my veganism in my life as well. I I did her Main Street Vegan Academy program and became a certified vegan lifestyle coach and editor. I and love that. Yeah, it's, she's she's the real deal. She's been at this for so long, and indeed, um, I love indeed. that she's still you know still doing new things and pushing her own limits. What I love about Victoria, too, is she creates things that have never been imagined before. She's not just carrying on a tradition. That lifestyle right. academy is brilliant. Absolutely Agreed. brilliant. Agreed. To have an immersive experience and actually a hands-on in, in, immerse, immersion mm -hmm. in, in vegan living. It's fantastic. It and was, that essay, yeah. I think the same that the essay I just mentioned. Mm -hmm. No one has written that before. It's a brand new concept and it's so have it in retrospect, it's obvious, but no one's pointed it out. Right. Right. Yeah. And I remember, um, her giving advice to writers a long time ago, and she said something about encouraging people not to worry that everything's been said before because it, it's all been said before, but you just find a different way to say it. And you say it in your own voice and your own style. But it sounds like she really came up with something new to say, which is she impressive did. after she's written all those books. Already. She, did. I, she did. I used to say that about um, another client of mine who's a wonderful, wonderful human being is a Neil Barnard, a physician's committee for responsible medicine. I represented him as his agent. Mm. And I like to say I don't I didn't say it then, but I can say it now. He wrote the same book 10 times. <laughs> 
but but it was from a perspective of a different disease. So how to prevent heart disease, how to prevent diabetes, how to present, prevent cancer. It's just so interesting that he can repackage the same message right. of how to eat. Instead of this is the diet, it'll cure everything. He did a separate book on everything it will cure. Right, right. I remember um, hearing T. Colin Campbell mention something along those lines. His one of his publishers wanted him to write, you know, different books on different diseases or different, at least different chapters on different diseases. And, and he was a little bit flummoxed because he, you know, he told them it's, it's the same, the same thing that works for all of the diseases. Exactly. You know? Exactly. But I want to just say, as long as I have the floor, as a yeah. <laughs> I don't want to say that veganism cures diseases because it may not. And right. if you promise people it will, it's not going to work. Right, it's, right, it's right. More than, it's, not a, it's more than a diet and it's not a cure-all. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. So a lot of people will not be cured by going to a vegan diet. Their health may improve in other ways. Their health may improve in countless ways, but it may not cure whatever ails you. And it may not be a total cure for everything. Right. And I know um, you have a book that, discusses those topics. I believe your book, even vegans die a practical exactly. guide to care of it, caregiving acceptance and protecting your legacy of compassion. Um, it sounds, I can tell you're, you're, you know, very passionate about that awareness, um, that, you know, veganism is not a cure-all. How, how did you come to feel that that was really important to write a book about? The book started with the idea that everyone needs to have a will. I was the executor of a friend's estate and he died very suddenly and I had to be the executor. And I realized, thank God he had a will. Thank God I knew what to do. Thank God, you know, he took care of business before he died. And I realized a lot of people are thinking, I'm not going to get sick. I'm a vegan. I'm mm -hmm. not going to die. I'm a vegan. And that's not true. We're still going to get sick. We're still going to die. That's one of the Buddhist messages that I love. We're all of the nature to age and have ill health and to die. Mm -hmm. It's going to happen whether you're healthy or not. So anyway, I, that was the, the beginning of the book was everyone needs to have a will. And everyone needs to take care of having or a will or a trust or just take care of business while you're alive and well. So the people who follow you know what to do when you die. Mm -hmm. Then when Carol Adams and Ginny Messina came on board, they expanded the message to make sure that we're inclusive of people who don't have white, thin bodies exclusively because the media portrays vegans as people who look like you and me. Thin white people are portrayed as a typical vegan. And in fact, that's not true. The typical vegan is anybody with a big heart. And the body types range from very thin to very fat and everything in between. And the skin colors are from people all over the world and from all over the world. And the variety is from very white to very dark. So the, the mythology around veganism is addressed in even vegans die. Mm -hmm. Another thing that made me realize it's important to write that book. I was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis about seven years ago, and I had been a vegan for more than 28 years at the time. So I know that it doesn't cure everything. It might make your disease less intense. It might help you live longer than you might have without it. But it's interesting that people think veganism is a cure for everything and it's not. What's interesting and funny to me is that 
I was a vegan for decades and a fairly healthy one, not 100%, but fairly health conscious. And I was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. <clears throat> Since my diagnosis, people have told me, oh, you should become a vegan. <laughs> uh, you you probably want to slap them in the face. Actually, I don't. I just laugh and I want to educate them and say, thank you so much. I've been a vegan for 33 years, 35 years now. And uh, I appreciate that. And there are famous diets. There's a famous doctor who claims she reversed her MS through diet. And I'm happy for her. And it does work for some people, but mm -hmm. certainly not for everybody. And certainly not to be held up there as don't take medicine, go on this diet. That's never a good idea mm -hmm. to trust only the diet. Right. Until your doctor tells you you don't need the medicine anymore, until you know you don't need the medicine anymore. It's just very interesting to me. Yeah. Um, so what, along those lines, what different dietary approaches have you tried as a vegan and how do you eat now? Like I said, when I started out, the only choice was you have to make it yourself. I mean, <laughs> you know, there was nothing to buy in the restaurant or a store that was vegan if it wasn't a salad. Then I went through everything that's vegan is going to be tried. When I go travel, when I used to travel, I mean, before COVID, my idea of a good trip was breakfast at a vegan restaurant, lunch at a vegan restaurant, dinner at a vegan restaurant. Yeah. And that's become so easy now that you need seven meals a day in most big cities. You can't <laughs> just do it in three. So um, that was, I, I just wanted to eat anything and everything that was vegan to see what people were doing with it. Mm -hmm. And now I'm back to, I'll try a new restaurant to, if it's vegan to see what it's like. And I discovered a great one in San Francisco last weekend. Oh my God. There's an Italian vegan restaurant called Baia, B-A-I-A in San Francisco, 100% vegan, 100% Italian and gorgeous, a very pretty interior. That was my first indoor meal in two and a half years. So that might've been part of the excitement, but the food was very good. But wow. um, I've, evo I've evolved back now to much more simple vegan eating, except for entertaining, you know, guests or friends are going to a restaurant. At home, I eat very, very simply. Once a week, my husband and I make a giant salad. It's like a chopped vegetable salad. There's very few leafy greens in it, but all the chopped vegetables and chickpeas and olives and that stuff. Then as we eat it, we'll add the greens. So each night we took a big bowl of the chopped vegetable salad and add some uh, kale or add some broccoli. You know, we'll add that at the last minute, the kale or lettuce. And that's basically our main meal of the day with a soup. So I always have a soup in the refrigerator and I always have a salad. And basically my meals are doctor up the soup, doctor up the salad. <laughs> right, right. And that's a potato. Brilliant about the salad approach, because I hate making salads, but that makes so much sense. You do all the fancy stuff in one fell swoop and keep one it fell swoop. Yeah, yeah, one day a week and we keep that in this refrigerator. And then each night, you sometimes I don't change it. But most nights I'll augment it with something. Mm -hmm. I'll add something to it. That the I'm... same with soup. I make a simple soup and then I'll add a potato to it or I'll add kale to it or I'll add bok choy to it or I'll add something to it every time I eat it. So it's a little bit different. Do you use an instant pot? Uh, no, Carol Adams has been begging me to get one and trying, trying to convince me. But I work at home. And I, I'm home most of the day and I like the smell of beans cooking. Mm. And I'm also very lazy. So I end up buying canned beans a lot. Uh -huh. 
So I just never felt the need to have an Instapot, though I read recipes. If I were more ambitious in the kitchen, I would want one. Yeah. If I were more creative, because I see it saves time, but I have that time and I don't need to save that time. Yeah. I'll just put it, I felt exactly the same way for all of those same reasons. Um, But I, someone gave me an Instant Pot last Christmas and um, I'm, I'm now you know, addicted. I, I love it. I also, I don't usually cook my beans in there. I still buy canned beans, but it just, it makes things have such a lovely texture, like everything that goes through the instant pot. It just like potatoes and for soups. So yeah, I, I get where you're coming from, but I'll, if I'll somebody say, got me it. one, I would probably try it, but I'm not going to go out and get it. My yeah, kitchen is yeah. tiny. I have a very small kitchen and between the blender and the food processor. Right. My right. counter space is at a premium, but it's interesting. Yeah. I thought when I got a, um, a what's the name, the expensive blender, a Vita- Vitamix. I thought that was going to let me get rid of my food processor, but it doesn't. It's a whole uh, different ballgame. Gotcha. Yeah, I don't. I don't have one of those. I just I have a food processor, but I haven't done. That's what I think. That's better. I mean, mm-hmm. except for smoothies, everything else I use the food processor for mm. because the blender is too deep and too hard to get stuff out of. Right. And it's too small a blade to make anything in bulk. Right. Right. I'm all about cooking in bulk. What, um, what kind of soup do you like to make? My favorite is, um, red lentil soup because it cooks Mm. so fast. The red lentils, they turn yellow. They're called red lentils, but it's yellow. I do barley or rice, usually barley and red lentils with a lot of ginger, Mm. a lot of, um, cumin, a lot of, um, a little bit of curry powder, mm-hmm. uh, fresh ginger, then cumin, curry powder, black pepper, garlic, tons of garlic. That sounds delicious. Yeah. I love red lentils. <laughs> yeah, I do too. That's my standard soup. Mm. Um, so I'd love to ask you a little bit more about your other books. Um, as someone who's now over 50 and didn't go vegan until her forties, I'm especially interested in your book, Never Too Late to Go Vegan, The Over 50 Guide to Adopting and Thriving on a Plant-Based Diet. Um, What inspired this book? This one was Carol's idea. We wanted to do another book and we realized this market had not been tapped. A lot of people, when they're thinking about retiring are panicked that they don't have a focus to their life. They won't have a purpose. They won't have something that's meaningful in their life when the job is over. And we try to explain that being a vegan can do all of that. It can help you find a purpose in your life. It can help you find a focus in your life. It can help you educate others and um, restore your own sense of integrity and fullness. So it was a message to people who were afraid of retirement. Oh, that's so interesting. Because I I haven't read the book. I I had assumed it was purely health-based and logistic-based, but it's had a broader inspiration, you know, the loss it is, of purpose. It, yes, it has all of that. But the purpose That's to great. me is the main focus of the book because a lot of people over 50, like their grandchildren are their only focus. Right, right. Which is not a bad thing, but it's much bigger life when you can realize you can change the world. You can actually mm-hmm. slow climate change. You can actually improve your health. You can actually be change the future of endangered species and change the quality of the air and water by reducing our dependence on animals 
Mm-hmm. It's just the, the repercussions of vegan diet are so vast that we want right. people to know them. Mm-hmm. So they feel like they're being purposeful with every choice three times a day. Yeah. So how have, have people embraced that message? There's no way to know when you set, when you write a book, there's, well, I guess if you're on public, if you're on social media, there is a way to know, but I'm not on social media. So maybe Carol knows, but I think so. Cause the book is still selling. It's still in print. It went back for a second printing. So I mean, nice. it's out, I guess people are taking to it. Yeah. Yeah. So what, what advice do you have for people who do think it's too late for them, that it's simply not worth the time and effort to go vegan? Well, there are stories in the book about a lot of people who thought that and then they went Mm. vegan because they had to. Their doctor said, you have to cut down on cholesterol. You have to cut down on animal products. My advice would be, you have nothing to lose by trying it. Mm -hmm. And and it's not all or nothing. What if you just did it every day for breakfast? Or what if you just did it one day a week for all three meals? What if you had vegan Mondays or vegan Fridays or just vegan lunches or just vegan when you're at home and you can eat anything you want when you eat out? There are different ways to try it. You don't have to jump in with both feet and become a vegan overnight. Right. That's good advice. Um, I probably could have used some of that advice before I made the made the change. Um, I like to ask people about what I call the parallel universe phenomenon. When we go vegan, we become aware of an entire universe of suffering that we hadn't been seeing before, whether willfully or by sheer lack of information. Um, What else did you become aware of after you went vegan? Besides the cruelty? Mm -hmm. Well, I think we all become aware of how addicted people are to their habits Mm. because in trying to change other people, it seems like, well, it was so obvious to me. Why isn't it obvious to you? If you just read this book, you're going to want to do what I did. But, you know, realizing how strongly we're attached to our opinions, that's where the Buddhist message comes in with the vegan message. When I became a vegan, I saw that we are very attached and defensive of our opinions and we hold fast to our views. And I'm probably still doing it in ways I don't know yet. But that was one thing I learned when I became vegan was the whole world of, oh, my God, we really are attached to our traditions and our views. Mm-hmm. I remember my grandmother saying it just has a little bit of meat in it, just has a little bit of chicken in it. Right. I said, I'm sorry, Grandma, it's the principle. I still love you. And I'd hug her and kiss her mm-hmm. and tell her how much I love her. And now, thanks to my sister who had the, the foresight to, re- to memorize my grandmother's recipes. I can make her vegan coleslaw. Mm. I can make her, I can make her coleslaw, but make it vegan. Mm-hmm. I can make her potato pancakes, but make them vegan. And mm-hmm. it's like, I can still have the flavors. I wish you were alive to see that. Mm. But my grandmother's food, I used to love, but it was never vegan. It wasn't even vegetarian. Now mm-hmm. I just love that I can make those foods right. and I can make them vegan. So that's something else I would tell people is you don't have to give up your favorite foods. There's a vegan version of virtually everything you love. In fact, a few years ago, I took out a library book called Betty Goes Vegan. Do you know that book? No. It, it was so expensive. I went to the library instead of buying it. Mm-hmm. It's basically Betty Crocker's cookbook from the 1950s, oh. but every single recipe was veganized. Every no single way. one. Wow. It's called Betty Goes Vegan. And that just blew me away. (laughs) 
the first recipe in it or the first one I read, I didn't make, but I read it with my jaw dropping. It was um, an egg on toast. And she somehow simulated a fried egg on toast without, this is before all these fake wow. egg products. Right. Were. But it was a very clever book and it had every huh. single recipe from the Betty Crocker cookbook, Veganized. That's amazing. <laughs> and that's something it. I would tell people who don't want to try veganism. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's I had a boyfriend a long time ago who um, I remember preparing a vegan meal for him that was, you know, like meatloaf, vegan meatloaf and mashed potatoes and cornbread and like all, all those comfort foods. And I just remember his reaction afterwards was just sheer astonishment, you know, like, oh, my gosh, I didn't think I'd be able to have any of those foods <laughs> anymore. You know, exactly. I kind of take it for granted at this point, like, oh, everybody knows that there are vegan versions of everything, but people, a lot of people don't realize it, or they think that they're just not very tasty. Right. Well, one of the things that um, I've heard a lot, but I didn't realize how often until Carol Adams pointed it out to me, people always say, well, if I could eat like this every day, I'd be vegan. <laughs> when, you take, when you take them to a good restaurant or you serve mm -hmm. them a good meal, like mm -hmm. your ex-boyfriend, mm -hmm. they say, if I could eat like this every day, I'd be vegan. Right. Right. It's a very common response when people eat delicious vegan food. Yeah. 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 I remember being at, I, I first, I first connected with you at vegan summer fest in Pennsylvania. And I remember at one of the seminars at the last summer fest I attended, um, it was hosted by, I forget the name of the woman now. She's, she's a, she's a lawyer. Um, she wrote the book. Um, mind if I have a hamburger? Yes. Yes. Mind if yeah. I order the hamburger? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and she made the point that people always say, oh, I could never be vegan. You know, I'd be giving up so much. And, you know, she, <laughs> she posed the question, well, have you ever had a vegan meal where you came away satisfied? you know, and, and felt like, oh, that was, that was good. <laughs> Have you ever had a vegan meal you enjoyed? And most people say, well, sure. You know, one time I did, it's like, well, you can do that for every meal. <laughs> you know, you can have an enjoyable meal. Like, why is that so hard to envision? Chrissy, let me interrupt for one second, just to say, yeah. I want to remind people that veganism isn't just about food. Mm. It's a lifestyle decision to try to cause as least amount of harm possible to other beings. So, mm we tend to think of veganism as a diet, but to me, it's much broader than that. It includes the choices you make and what entertainment to consume, whether you go to a circus that has live animals or to a sea world where captive, you know, captive whales and captive dolphins. It's about whether or not you wear leather because leather is definitely cruel to animals. It's much bigger it's also about how we treat other people with respect mm -hmm. or not. It's not dismissing people because their views don't align with ours, which is right. harder than ever in this world with the political divide. Right. But it's being able to being able to see the the aliveness and commonality with all other beings that we have. So mm -hmm. I want to just expand it from food to make sure people know that that's why plant based is different from vegan. Plant based mm -hmm. is about diet. Right. Right. But vegan is more about a lifestyle choice that causes as little harm as possible to other beings. Thank you for that reminder. That is, um, yeah, I think that's something that we, it's easy to lose sight of because there's so much exciting thing, 
so, so much exciting stuff happening in the world of vegan food. Um, but yeah, sometimes we can get so enchanted by the latest, greatest, uh, vegan product that we, um, you know, stop talking about the bigger aspect of it. Um, what do you've been at this? You've been in the animal rights game for a long time. Um, so I'm curious what changes you've seen and what you think the state of the movement is for these, these days. The changes I've seen are mixed. They're basically overall, they're very good for animals. My favorite name of any organization is the Animal Legal Defense Fund. I mm. love that there's an organization fighting for the legal rights of animals. That's just brilliant. There's also a lot of change in terms of um, awareness. People like, who's, uh, what's her name with the gorillas? Not um. Diane Fossey. Um, God, who's that woman? She just wrote a big book. She's very famous. Anyway, um, what is her name? Yeah, um, I know. Everybody knows exactly who you're talking about, but exactly. it's escaping me at the moment too. Anyway, there. I think people are more aware of the animal's plight than ever before mm -hmm. because of endangered species, because of climate change, threatening animals. Jane Goodall. Jane Thank Goodall. you, Jane Goodall. Because of Jane Goodall and because of... Um, Let's just stop with her for a minute. I think animals have more spokespeople now. Animal Legal Defense Fund and Jane Goodall and other people are speaking up for animals in ways they didn't have such successful media advocates. Oh, and Jane, Jane Velez Mitchell, who has is a TV broadcaster. I think animals have better PR now. I think they're, mm -hmm. they're much more in people's awareness. The connection between what we eat and how they suffer is not as strong as I hoped it would be, but it's stronger than it has been in the past. Mm -hmm. People don't see how dairy hurts animals. They keep saying, well, what's wrong with drinking milk? The cows make the milk anyway. I'm not going to go into that on this podcast. I presume your listeners know, but that's what I, well, I forgot what the question was. How have I seen the evolution of animal rights? Um, and the state of the movement, the state of the animal rights movement these days. There's a lot of inner turmoil in the movement. There are people who see disrespect for women. And I understand this point of view. There are a lot of people who don't like the men who are running some of the larger organizations are not as respectful to the women in those organizations as they could be. There's a lot of division internally. And Victoria tries to be the healer and tries mm. to remind us it's bigger than that. Stop worrying about that. And mm -hmm. then Carol Adams says, it's not bigger than that. That's the issue. You have to have equality among all the beings in the movement, the ones with four legs, the ones with two legs, the ones advocating and the ones who are being advocated for. So there's a, I see a tension mm -hmm. between the people that want to ignore the human foibles and just focus on the animals and the people who say, no, you can't let women or fat people be used by the movement. I had a beef, that's a terrible expression. I had a, <laughs> I had a concern with PETA many years ago because mm -hmm. they used fat people as an example of why you should go vegan. And mm -hmm. that's so stupid. There are a lot of fat vegans <laughs> right. and there's no reason to show them as something to be hated or, or not, you know, right. not included in the movement. The yeah. movement is weaker if you don't include everybody. Right. 
And I mean, right. everybody, everybody's shape, everybody's size. Yeah. So I think the movement has some work to do with its own messaging and its own self evaluation, but overall it's, it's, it's moving in the right direction, but the way it's moving has some issues to work out. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can see why you would say that I have. Uh, and for, for people who may not be aware, um, Carol Adams is, how would you describe her, Patty? I know she wrote a book called the sexual politics of meat and, and she's big on the in, go ahead. I'm saying that's in its 25th year and they just wow. published a 25th anniversary edition. And she did wow. a follow-up book about it. It's just art, just art showing, making the point. And she's my co-author on a number of books. And she wrote, help my child stop eating meat. She's written a lot of really excellent books about mourning animal, grieving the loss of animal companion. I mean, she's, she's just mm. a brilliant, brilliant woman. And that's how I describe her, a brilliant woman who's an animal advocate, a feminist, mm -hmm. and an eco-feminist. She's just, she sees the big picture and she understands that humans are part of the problem and we have to get our act together while we advocate for animals. Right, right, right. Yeah. And I, I feel like um, Will Tuttle's book, The World's Peace Diet, really gets gets to some of those issues as well, because he makes the point that, you know, we humans are animals and just like we're against herding animals, you know, H-E-R-D-I-N-G, um, you know, we don't want to take, take a herding attitude when we're conveying the vegan message. We're not trying to herd humans into going vegan, um, what they think, you know, to do what we say is right. Even though 10 years ago, we may have held a different view of things. Um, yeah, it's, it's so interesting. Um, that's, that's one thing that I personally love about being vegan is there's so much to think about so much to ponder so much to discuss. Um, and also so many, so much validity to so many different approaches. Like you were, you were talking about some of the differences in, you know, Victoria Moran's, um, you know, attitude toward some of these conflicts within the vegan movement and Carol Adams's, um, approach. And I, I feel like I, you know, you often hear the debate at conferences between, you know, the animal welfare approach and the animal rights approach. And, um, so it's, I, I find it all very interesting. If only, if only there weren't so much at stake, you know, it would, it would be very just, you know, pure intellectual fun to discuss all these things. But of course, you know, lots of animals are suffering in the meantime. So it's about a lot more than just semantics. Um, Indeed. Let me, let me also just say, adding on to that, veganism yeah. itself is not what I think about most of the time during the day. It's like mm. once you're a vegan and mm. once you get that proselytizing part out of you, mm. the way an ex-smoker wants everyone to quit smoking, right. new vegans want everybody to go vegan. Once you realize, and that could be years as it was with me, when you realize that you're not going to convert everybody you talk to, mm -hmm. your life kind of goes back to its normal rhythms and veganism isn't the driving force of your thoughts every day. On these pod this podcast, you might think that that's all we ever think about or talk about. <laughs> and there is a lot to think about and a lot to talk about, but it's certainly not taking up the largest area of real estate in my brain most of the day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in fact, that was one of my motivators in starting this podcast was that 
at these different conferences and just living life as a vegan, I encounter so many interesting people who are vegan, who have such full, rich, interesting, creative lives and who are doing so many things. They're not, you know, they're not holed up in the corner of, you know, a health food store. They're out in the world (laughs) doing really, really interesting, fun, exciting things. And so um, that was, even though we talk a lot about veganism on the podcast, that that's what you're describing is exactly part of the goal is to show people that, I know we have lives, <laughs> we have interests. We didn't put our life on hold when we went vegan. Instead, you know, being vegan made our, made our life richer and fuller. Well said. Um, so for you, what was the biggest surprise for you in going vegan? I know it's been a while now, but what, what did I you think- expect? I think that I could cook. That was like brand new to me. Seriously. I, I That's a good surprise. Yeah. I lived in New York and I didn't have to cook. I mean, I brought everything in. I didn't right. cook. Right. In fact, <clears throat> until I read Fit for Life, I ate for breakfast what I thought was a healthy breakfast and I hated it. I hated it. <laughs> I had cottage cheese with honey on it. <laughs> And I really never liked it, but I thought it's good for you. Go ahead and eat it. Then, then I switched to donuts and coffee because I couldn't stand the cottage cheese and honey. And then when I read Fit for Life, it's like, oh my God, I don't have to eat something I don't like for breakfast. I can have fruit. I was so happy. They <laughs> called my office the Carmen Miranda office. She was an actress who used to wear fruit hats on. Right, her. right. And I used to have bowls of fruit in my office. And anyone who came in, I said, have an apple, have some grapes, have a banana. <laughs> I was like pushing fruit and I had fruit in my office all the time. So that was a big surprise to me that I didn't have to eat what I didn't want to eat. Mm. Yeah, I love that. Right. And I think some people still kind of carry that conception like, oh, if I go vegan, that means I have to eat, you know spelt and kale all the time or something. And right. Um, you can eat what you like. You can eat what you it. like. Yeah. Um, what is, what's the most fun thing for you about being vegan? I miss Summerfest Cause that was like yeah. really fun. That was like a yeah. summer vacation among people who understood you and you didn't have to explain a thing. You could just be mm. vegan. And what was fun about Summerfest was when you had to choose your food, there was the raw food bar. There was the gluten-free bar. There was the third one, the fat-free bar. And then right. the, the normal vegan food bar. So yeah. I, I tried to eat from all of them because I love seeing what people were, were getting. So that was the most fun for me, but that's not happening anymore to the best of my knowledge. Yeah, I, it, I know it's off for this year. And it was hard to get to from the West coast. It was, it was like a two day journey. It just, it was, it took forever to get there. And if I lived on the East coast, it might be easier. You could drive there, but. It's an odd location. I, I found, I do live on the East coast. Well, now I'm in Nashville, but um, it was always a little tricky to get to. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, but I fun. agree. The food was, the food was the best. Phenomenal. The it was, and there was, was never enough so time good. to eat it. I could have oh spent twice gosh. the time in the dining room, but there was a session you wanted yeah. to get to. Or right. maybe they were yeah. Right. The other yeah. fun thing for me is trying new restaurants. Mm, yeah. I love trying new vegan restaurants. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm with you. Um, what's the toughest thing about being vegan? It 
it's really not. I can't think of a single thing that's challenging. Mm-hmm. It's so weird. Maybe because I live it's, in the Bay Area, but I can't yeah. think of anything at all that's challenging because I'm a vegan. I'm trying to think. Maybe when I when I have to fill out form, I'm trying to think where that where that might be. I can't. I isn't that embarrassing? I can't think of a single thing that's challenging about being a vegan. No, it's, I think it's great. I mean, it shows that it's just so integrated that it's just. What are some of the things your other guests say to that question? Um, people sometimes talk about family meals or work outings, um, you know, not being able to participate in, you know, the food sharing and the food celebrations. Um, and then on a, on an emotional level, people talk about just, you know, it being painful to walk around and still see animals exploited and people just being oblivious to what's happening in our food industry. I'll vote for that one. Yeah, it is. It is challenging to know that the solutions are are within our hands. When I read articles about all these problems with methane, I say, get rid of the cows. We don't need the cows. Yeah. Right. So that is frustrating. It doesn't, it doesn't affect my life personally. I thought the question was more personal. Like, what do I find challenging personally in my day-to-day life? Mm-hmm. But yes, when I read the paper, I get very angry about the fact that the solution is in plain sight. And nobody has, like I said, we're very attached to our views and habits. Right, right. So that's, that's frustrating. Yeah, yeah um, I had that same, you know, just revelation after being vegan for a number of years where I'd really convinced a lot of people that being vegan was advantageous in so many ways, you know, from a health perspective, from a compassion perspective, from a sustainability perspective, and yet they still weren't making the shifts. And I realized that for, for certain people, I won't name any names, um, but for certain people, they just, they just almost don't have a capacity, or at least in this moment, don't have a capacity for doing anything that's outside mainstream convention, you know, as long as veganism was not the, the conventional standard, they just weren't going to do it. Um, even if they agreed with it intellectually and philosophically and morally. So, um, that was a big, uh, that was very strange for me to recognize. Do you, have you noticed, have you noticed that or anything similar? I'm very fortunate that my friends are open-minded I used to be in a book group where I couldn't eat the food that was served at the book group meetings because it wasn't vegan. So I started my own book group and everybody started it was vegan. And now we've let a lot of people in the group who aren't vegan. But the rule is if you're hosting, all the food has to be vegan. Well, some of these people have turned into fantastic vegan chefs. And we Uh, look forward. We have two members who you would think were Martha Stewart, like vegan Martha Stewart. They're (laughs) incredible. We go to their house and the food is spectacular. And we're like, oh my God, you set the bar so high. Wow. I keep bringing it back to simple. Like when I, when it's my turn to host, I have a few dips and a lot of veggies and like, it's very simple. Mm-hmm. They make four course meals where we <laughs> sit down to like soup, salad and entree and three desserts. And um, I find it interesting that the best cooks in the group are not the vegans. They're <laughs> the ones who are trying to entertain for the vegans. Right, right. So um, that's kind of exciting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, how does being vegan affect your view of health and your body? You know, you mentioned being diagnosed with MS and how, how is your veganism, you know, 
affected your perspective on what that means for you? I tend more often than I, the first 10 years or 20 years, I was a pretty healthy vegan. Then I got into all the ice cream and all the vegan junk food and the vegan cheeses. Because of the diagnosis, I've gone back to being somewhat healthy. I don't deny myself the treats, but they're not daily anymore. You know, they're like maybe once or twice a month. Or you know, if I have, if there's a reason to celebrate something, I won't, I won't deny myself the indulgence, mm-hmm. but it's not like a daily habit anymore. So mm-hmm. I'm trying to reduce the inflammatory foods and I'm trying to, you know, reduce the sugar, but not not fanatically. Mm-hmm. So I'm paying more attention to making sure that I'm giving my body the best tools possible. Yeah. And my overall health is excellent, except for the MS. I'm doing great. Mm-hmm. I want to put in a plug for Qigong. I've been doing yoga for 30 years, but just last month I started a Qigong class. And within two days of that class, certain aches and pains totally went away, totally like disappeared. And I was dumbfounded. I I have no idea if it was the physical therapy I've been doing for years, if it was the yoga I've been doing for decades, if it was the massage therapy I have every month, once a month. If it was acupuncture that I tried when the pain started, but I have pain in my hip and we didn't know if it was arthritis or MS or something else. No one knew, but I tried everything. Nothing worked. And within two days of starting the Qigong practice, it totally went away. Totally wow. went away. So what is, I don't even know what that is. What is Qigong? How do you spell it? C-H-I, second word, G-O-N-G. Okay. But sometimes the chi is spelled Q-I, which is a marvelous Scrabble word that's now legal and changes the whole game of Scrabble. Oh, wow. Yeah. Q-I and Q-I-S. <laughs> anyway, that's a side. That's, that's an aside. <laughs> but Qigong is, um, I don't even know. It's, a, it's an ancient Asia. I think it started in China and it predates Tai Chi. It's basically like Tai Chi. It's a slow motion meditation movement. Hmm. It's a movement practice with specific moves that integrate your energy. Qi is life energy. It's the right. Chinese word for life energy. Right. And Qigong activates and frees up that energy by uh-huh. doing slow motion movements that connect you between the earth and the heavens. So you pay attention to your connection to the earth through your feet, your connection to the heavens through your head, and you're the conduit and the energy flows through you. Huh. And these movements make the energy flow to help the energy flow through you. Now I am a brand new student. So anything I'm saying might be totally (laughs) wrong. And your, your listeners who have more experience may correct me, but that's my understanding of it. And it it was, I have no idea if it's the Qigong that did this. Yeah. But but the coincidence was astounding to me. Right. It's like only after two classes, everything changed. Wow. And I thought, I'm not going to look a gift horse in the mouth. Maybe it is, maybe right. it isn't, but I'm still going to do the Qigong. So I signed up for another month of mm-hmm. once a week classes. And I do a little bit of it at home every morning. Mm-hmm. And I'm just astounded that the huh. physical pain I have in my hip is gone. That's yeah. That's very intriguing. Um, I'm definitely going to look into that. Um, so do you, in one word, how do you feel about being vegan? Is there one word that kind of sums it up for you? natural natural 
I just feel like it's the natural way to be. And I feel like it's natural to me, mm -hmm. even though I was 30 in my third, I don't remember how old I was 35. I think when I became a vegan. Okay. And yeah. when the year, the year I turned, let me think. I was 32. I'm sorry. I was 32 when I became a vegan. The year I turned 64, I celebrated that half my life was vegan. And now my, now I have more years as a vegan than not vegan. My first half my life, I wasn't a vegan. And then starting that year I was, and now I realize I've been a vegan longer than I wasn't. And I was like, that's because it's so natural to me. Yeah. It's, just so, it's become my normal way of life. Right. Right. Wow. I won't, I won't be hitting that until I'm in my eighties. <laughs> okay. Well, that's something to look forward to. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so as you know, I recently finished a novel that's coming out. Well, I finished it a while ago, but my novel is coming out, um, in November it's called marrying myself and it features the vegan protagonist. I'm wondering if you think the world of women's fiction is ready for a vegan protagonist. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. What absolutely. makes you say that? It's where women are going. Yeah. And yeah. every woman who every woman who is not a vegan probably knows a vegan or knows of a vegan. Mm -hmm. I don't know any women who haven't heard of Greta Thunberg. I don't right. know any women who haven't heard of, um, again, I forgot her name, Jane Goodall. Jane Goodall. <laughs> or or, or um, Ingrid Newkirk. Yeah. Women, women know about vegan women. And so finding one who isn't a celebrity and is just a character in a book is going to feel somewhat natural. Mm. Yeah. And I think it will, it will forward the message. It will, it will continue the message that it is natural. It's mm -hmm. doable. Normal people can be vegans. Right. Right. And that, that was one of my well, it was funny because when I started writing the book, I wasn't vegan. <laughs> so after I went vegan, I had to adjust, adjust some of the details because I, at that point, I didn't feel, didn't want my protagonist to not be a vegan. But what um, made you, what made you have a vegan protagonist when you weren't a vegan yet? No, no, that, that's what I'm saying. She, she was not vegan when I oh, was Oh, I vegan. see. You changed And then the after book. I went vegan, you know, I was like, oh God, no, she has to be vegan too. That's Which, funny. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, that's but great. that was, that was part of my, my goal too, was, you know, this book veganism does play, you know, a pretty prominent role in the novel, but it's not what the book is about. You know, it's, it's right. a story. It's, it's a story. It's a, you know, fun romantic women's fiction story with a surprise ending. It's not great. You know, it's not a, a book just for vegans. So, um, That's I think great. like that, that perception that you mentioned early on about, you know, being, being vegan, isn't all we vegans think about and talk about and do it's more of a, you know, I think for me, you know, it's, it's a backdrop, it's a foundation, it's, it's a lens through which I view the world, but it's not, um, you know, it's not all I, you know, I haven't abandoned all my creative pursuits, my intellectual curiosity, my fun activities. Um, so I, it, it is funny to hear people who think that that's all that vegans do. So I'm glad that you're also committed to breaking that stereotype. I think it's interesting also that your character is going to just normalize veganism more. People wonder why in my newsletter, I'm always stressing new vegan products, even though I don't eat most of them. 
And I said, it normalizes veganism. It makes people right. see how normal it is that like this company now has a vegan version of that. This company has a vegan version of that. Right. And this, it normalizes it. Mm -hmm. So the more mm -hmm. people see normal things, normal people in the role of veganism, it just makes it feel less bizarre. Right. I agree. Totally agree. What's your character's name in the book? Julia Jones. Julia Jones. She's going to help normalize veganism. <laughs> um, yes, I, I believe so. I think so. I hope so. So thank I'm you eager for to read affirming the book. that. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Um, I will definitely send you a copy for sure. Well, or tell me when it's out and I'll buy a copy. Great, great. Yeah, it's coming out November 23rd, I believe is my release date. Um, so I'm just doing my final, you know, final preparations to send them the official manuscript and all of that good stuff. Um, so I have just a few more questions for you before we wrap up. Um, for one, we like to offer our guests a chance to do some vegan venting. I mean, you're clearly a very grateful, happy vegan. Um, so maybe, maybe this won't resonate, but um, what's, is there any particular source of frustration for you as a vegan and how have you learned to handle it? I was very frustrated yesterday. There's someone, I don't know his name, but someone who lives nearby me, not that someone who lives in the East Bay, I'm in the North Bay, who about twice a year sends me a packet this thick of papers on veganism and religion and how every religion should push veganism. I put the right into recycling because I already know everything he's going to say. Uh -huh. And it bothers me that he's wasting paper and wasting time. <laughs> I don't know what he expects me to do with this. And I wrote back about two years ago. I said, please stop sending me your papers. I get it. And I'm not in the position to do anything with them. Mm -hmm. So people who proselytize me bother me because I'm already <laughs> there. It's like, you know, right. someone trying to tell me to look into this. And I was like, I've been looking into it 30 years. Thank you. Right, right. Preaching so, to the choir and wasting yeah, that proselytizing energy on someone that, who yeah it. exactly and that's so minor i mean that happens just once or twice a year but i'm trying to think of anything else that frustrates me like you said just how how attached people are to their views it's like oh really okay i get it you don't want to give up that view <laughs> okay but i've learned to live with that i've learned to accept that i don't yeah. stop trying i don't stop being a model for what the ideal is for me yeah. in dietary choices but I'm very seldom frustrated except for the big picture things, like you said, that the world's going to hell in a handbasket. You know, we're destroying the planet. We're killing animals in the process and people in the process and people are suffering the wildfires and the droughts and the mudslides and the heat waves. It's just all so frustrating to me. It's not necessarily a vegan frustration. It's shared by a lot of Americans, but a piece of the puzzle is our dietary choices and public policy that support those choices and right. tax breaks for people who are making those choices. And um, that's my frustration is that we're losing the big picture. Right. The government could stop subsidizing the dairy industry and the beef right. industry. And that right. would go a long way to normalizing a diet that's better for the planet. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. my frustration is more on that level than personal. Gotcha, that makes sense. All right. Last question. Um, 
what vegan adventure are you next looking forward to? The restaurant I, I just discovered in San Francisco <laughs> that I went to for dinner has a brunch and I've never uh, been there for brunch. So my next adventure uh, is to go there for brunch. I am. Everyone who knows me knows that I'm a huge brunch fan. So <laughs> does National have some good vegan brunches? They have some amazing vegan brunches. I just went for brunch yesterday to a place called Gray's. That's a vegan restaurant that does a lovely brunch. Um, and in fact, I was in St. Louis last weekend and discovered a place that supposedly had a vegan brunch buffet, which I was, that's kind of a dream come true for me. Unfortunately, it turned out that it, um, it wasn't doing the buffet and we ended up going somewhere else, but, um, <laughs> yeah, vegan brunch is, is a wonderful thing. Um, all right. Anything else you'd like to add before we wrap things up for the day? I just thank you for the opportunity to talk with you, Chrissy. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you. Likewise. All right. We close every episode by taking 30 seconds of silence for the animals. So Patty, I invite you to join me in 30 seconds of silence for all of the suffering animals, human and non-human who desire, as we all do, safety, happiness, and the freedom to live out their lives without interference. And we'll conclude with the sound of the bell. Well, thank you again, Patty, and thank you, Posse. Um, see you next time. And until then, stay strong and stay true.